Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek. The twentieth talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 10, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.edu. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes, subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved. We've been looking at Hebrews, and we've spent a couple weeks on the traditional chapter 7, the first 10 verses. David made a great suggestion last week, and that is we need to go back to Genesis and look at the passage that he's alluding to, or that is kind of underlying what he has to say there. So I want to do that today, at least for part of our time. It may be all of our time. So the passage is in Genesis 14, if you want to look at that passage. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to recount the events there. And then I want to give you my take on what's going on there, why it's there, what I think the significance and meaning of Genesis 14. Abraham and Lot have divided. Lot has taken pasture land down by Sodom and Gomorrah in the Rift Valley. And that region has been conquered by a king named Ketelearmar, along with a coalition of about three other kings. So the four kings have come and laid siege to several cities and wrecked them, broken things, taken people captive until they have subjugated them and made them client city-states. That's just sort of the pattern of the ancient world. It's something that gets repeated by the mafia today. You destroy their property and then come along and promise to protect them from things like that if you'll pay them money, protection money. Well, that's essentially what, that was the logic of political relationships in the ancient world. You pay us an annual fee, protection money, and we will protect you. So King Ketelearmar has done that, but then every now and then, city-states get uppity, and they don't pay their fee. And when they do that, the ruling state will come in a year later and lay siege to your city and capture people and break things and do all kinds of mean, nasty stuff. So the king of Sodom and several other kings in that area have neglected to pay their annual fee. So King Ketelearmar and other kings have come into the Rift Valley to enforce their subjugation of these city-states. Lot lives in Sodom. So he comes, and they go out to battle. There's a big battle, and in this battle, the kings from the... I'll just call them the kings from the east. The kings from the east defeat the local kings in the Rift Valley, and in the process, they take Lot captive, and they head back east with all kinds of plunder, slaves, captives that they have taken here. So as the story goes, Lot has been taken captive. Somebody who escaped comes and tells Abraham what has happened, and Abraham decides, I need to go rescue Lot. So off Abraham goes to rescue Lot with two or three other small armies that join an alliance with him. They defeat the kings of the east, they free Lot, and they get all of the plunder that he's taken, and they head back home. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem are said to have met Abraham on his way back, and now I'll read and take up the story here. This is verse 17 of chapter 14. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to Yahweh... God Most High, 
possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their share. Okay, that's the passage that forms the foundation for Psalm 110, the point that David makes in Psalm 110, which is being interpreted by Paul in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I want to emphasize a few points about how to understand the account in Genesis 14. First of all, I think I have always been inclined, because of the influence of Hebrews 7 and and what people have said about that, to think when we see Melchizedek going out to the valley to meet Abraham, he's going out as a priest. And the bread and wine that he's taking out, he's taking out as a priest. This is ceremonial bread. This is ceremonial wine. He's going out to have Eucharist with Abraham. What else are we supposed to do with that, right? But if I set all that stuff aside and I just read Genesis, what's more likely? What's more likely is that Melchizedek is going to meet Abraham for much the same reason that the king of Sodom is going to meet Abraham. And what would that be? Well, the king of Sodom is going because Abraham now is the possessor of a whole lot of stuff that used to belong to Sodom. If the king of Sodom wants it back, he's going to have to get it back from Abraham. And certainly, even if he doesn't get his stuff back, he wants his people back. Who now is the possessor of his people or the protector of his people? It's Abraham. So he's going out into the valley to meet Abraham to see if he can get his people back and they can rebuild and they can rebuild their city. Now, there's no record that Salem has been sacked in the same way that Sodom has. It's possible We know that the activity is in that whole region, so it's possible that even though we don't have an explicit record of it, Salem is in exactly the same condition that Sodom was in. They too have lost some possessions and some people. So why would Melchizedek then be meeting him if that were the case? Same reason the king of Sodom is, to see if he can get his people and maybe some of his possessions back. The fact that he's a priest is made a big deal of by David and Paul, but it's not made a big deal of exactly here in Genesis. He's the king of Salem. And I think the reason he's going out to meet Abraham is as the king of Salem, not as the priest to the Most High God, in all likelihood. Now, it's also possible that Salem has been left untouched by the kings of the east. Why then would he be going out to meet him? Well, a couple of real possibilities. One is... Even though he may not in Salem be a client state, there's always this looming threat of this coalition of the kings of the east that has always been hanging over their heads. All these other cities have been conquered by them and are client states. When are these kings of the east going to get the idea to come and sack them and make them a client state? So they're under the intimidation of these empire builders from the east they would be more than grateful to be liberated from that threat. So Melchizedek may very well be coming with gratitude and celebration to celebrate the newfound liberty that has been given to the whole region, not just the Sodom, but the whole region has been liberated from their influence and their dominance. So Melchizedek, as the king of Salem, may very well be coming out to show his gratitude and to celebrate the victory. Or it could be something a little bit more cynical than that. It's entirely possible that Melchizedek, I think all the indications are this was a rather remarkable victory, Abraham beating these kings. The coalition of five kings had been defeated by these four armies. Abraham, with his militia and two other militias, have defeated them. Something was going on that was actually quite remarkable. And we see in the account what Melchizedek thinks. Whoa, (laughs) your God takes good care of you. This is pretty impressive. Whose side do I want to be on? Do I want to be against Abraham or do I want to be for Abraham? And so it may very well be that this is Melchizedek, the king of Salem, 
wanting to curry favor with Abraham because he, frankly, is afraid of him. This is a new power that has made itself apparent and manifest in the region. Well, what is he going to do? He wants to curry favor with him. So the innocent interpretation, the innocent Melchizedek, would be grateful and celebratory. So the bread and wine that he's bringing out is actually to feed Abraham and his troops. This is not a little slug of grape juice and a wafer. This is bread and wine. And as you may know, bread and wine were basically also interchangeable with food and drink in both Greek and in Hebrew. So it doesn't even have to literally be bread and literally be wine, although, of course, it's wine, but, but it didn't have to literally be bread. It was food. He's coming out to feed them. They're undoubtedly tired, weary, hungry, and so on, and he's showing hospitality, meeting their needs. Why? Either as an act of celebration and gratitude or in order to curry favor. But he's doing so as the king of Salem. Okay? Now... Why does the text mention that he's a priest of the Most High God? Because the very crucial part of the event is the blessing that Melchizedek blesses him with, namely, and now keep in mind, this blessing is basically a statement of praise. To bless the Most High God is to praise the Most High God. To bless Abraham is probably kind of a combination of praising him on the one hand for being favored but also for wishing him further good things that might happen, further gifts from his God, and wishing those upon him is to bless him. The account zeroes in on the role of the God Most High. Melchizedek is saying to Abraham, you didn't build that, you didn't have that victory, you didn't gain that victory, you didn't have the power, that was God who granted you the victory. You're not a big deal, Abraham. Again, the the cynical thing is, now don't be getting too ambitious here, Abraham. You're not that big of a deal. (laughs) It's your God who gave you that victory. That would be the more cynical interpretation. Or the other more innocent interpretation would be the plain truth is God has favored you and Abraham, you have every reason to be thankful and grateful to your God for the victory that he's given you. Now he's speaking knowledgeably as a priest to the Most High God. Now, that's not why he's there, but that's how he's functioning in relationship to Abraham at that point. He's reminding Abraham of the gratitude that he owes the God Most High. That, I think, is why this account is in here. Because notice it in contrast to the next part of the account, which is the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Now, why would he say that? Sodom seems to be saying, implicit in this whole thing seems to be the idea that if you have conquered, if you have gained stuff through military victory, it's yours. It belongs to you. Poor Sodom has lost it because he was the loser. The kings of the east had it. Abraham beat them. Now he has it. It's his. By all rights, Abraham could keep all of it, people and everything, apparently. So Sodom is kind of asking something of a favor. Abraham, the stuff, I don't need the stuff, I don't want the stuff, but could I please have my people back? (laughs) Would you be so kind, would you be so merciful as to give me my people back and you can keep all the stuff? But how does Abraham respond? No, 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 I'm not going to take any of it. I'm not going to keep any of it, just what my boys have eaten and the stuff that I've just tithed to Melchizedek, but anything else, I'm not going to keep it. I'm giving it back. It's yours. Now, why? Sodom is assuming it belongs to you. You deserve it. You, it's your victory. You should get the spoils of victory. They should belong to you. The perspective of Sodom is you gained that victory. Notice the perspective of Melchizedek whether for cynical purposes or sincerely, the perspective articulated by Melchizedek is God gave you that victory. And those are contrasting perspectives toward what just happened here. Was it God who gave you the victory or were you tough enough to secure the victory for yourself? Sodom is taking the second perspective. Melchizedek is taking the first one. The fact that Abraham responds 
by paying tithes to Melchizedek is the way that Abraham is honoring the perspective of Melchizedek. Yep, you're right. I should be grateful. I should honor the God Most High because it is the God Most High who gave me the victory. So you're absolutely right. And he pays a tithe to him. Sodom says, all that stuff rightfully belongs to you, Abraham. If you can see it in your heart to give my people back, I'd appreciate it. But it all belongs to you because you gained the victory. To which Abraham says, no, I didn't. In fact, he says, notice what he says. I have sworn to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. Now, what's that all about? Why did he swear to Yahweh that he wouldn't do that? What makes the most sense to me, if you were Abraham in that situation, wouldn't you at some point as you are going against, if you're outnumbered in the way that he must have been outnumbered, but you're about to go to battle, have said something like, Yahweh, please grant us the victory. I don't want the stuff. I don't need the stuff. I swear I will not keep the stuff. I don't want victory because I want to get rich. I just want Lot back. And Yahweh, if you will help me, I swear that I will not keep any of the spoils. That seems to be what he's saying to Sodom. I swore an oath to Yahweh that I wouldn't keep the spoils. So, no, I'm not going to keep it. So, even the oath itself already is showing us that Abraham was utterly and completely in a frame of mind where if he gained victory, it's because Yahweh gave him the victory and no other way would he have victory. And that's his perspective. So he responds to the king of Sodom accordingly. Nah, it's not my stuff. It's your stuff. And I promised Yahweh that I wouldn't keep it if he gave it to me. So have it back. And it seems to me that that's the purpose of the account in Genesis, is to show us the growth in the trust and relationship between Abram and Yahweh, this God who's revealed himself to Abram, who's made promises to him and made himself known to Abram. We're seeing the growth in his relationship. He believes in this God. He trusts this God. He honors this God. And it's a response of gratitude to this God who is the source of all of his blessings, any and all blessings that he's received. I think that's what Moses, whoever is giving us this account in this version, is intending for us to take from this, is an example of the faith of the father of Israel who took Yahweh seriously. Now, notice that in that reading of it, Melchizedek doesn't really have to know Yahweh. All he has to know is the most important God in the block has gifted you with the victory, Abraham. Now fill in the blank there. Who is that God? Abraham knows that God is the God who's revealed himself to him, who later reveals himself by his name, Yahweh. But that comes later. As for now, Abraham knows good and well who gave him the victory. Does Melchizedek know the God that gave him the victory? Maybe, maybe not. We don't really have anything in the text that would tell us that he necessarily does. Okay, I'm sure I've left something out, but let me pause there for any questions that you have at this point. If Melchizedek didn't necessarily know God the Most High by the name of Yahweh, the little parenthetical phrase there in verse 18 he was priest of God Most High. Of God Most High, but it doesn't say of Yahweh. But he was, okay, so he didn't know he was priest of Yahweh. Well, and he may not have been priest of... See, in, in the ancient world, in polytheism, you have a pantheon of gods, and you are well aware, any Middle Eastern person worth their salt knows that there's a whole pantheon of gods. There's a particular god who is in charge of all the other gods, who imposes his will on all the other gods, and that's the god that you're most interested in keeping happy because he can get the gods under him to work in your favor if you are in favor of the god most high. So whoever the god most high, it, he may have a name in Salem. I, undoubtedly he had a name. I don't know who that god would have been at this particular time. But whoever he was by whatever name he had, he was the head god in their pantheon, in their understanding of the pantheon of gods. Well, from Abraham's perspective, 
he knows that the main God of the pantheon of gods is the God who has revealed himself to him, who's appeared to him, and who has made promises to him. In time, we come to know him as Yahweh. Abraham knew him as apparently El Shaddai, according to what God tells Moses on Mount Sinai. Your fathers knew me as El Shaddai, God says to Moses, but from now on you will know me as Yahweh. So apparently that's the name that Abraham knew him by, or at least one of the names he knew him by. So is that the same name that Melchizedek would have given to that God? I don't know. So Melchizedek has his own assumptions as to who this God Most High is, when in fact the God Most High is Yahweh, but in his pantheon in Salem, definitely, well, most likely a different name and maybe a different concept entirely. Right, right. But maybe not. Yeah, we just don't, don't have enough information to okay. know, for sure. But historically, in all likelihood, Melchizedek is just a plain, old, ordinary polytheist like everybody else in the world at that time. And indeed, I think Abraham is basically a polytheist in the same way, but he's a polytheist who has had a God reveal himself to Abraham and is wooing him to complete and utter and total trust and reliance upon him. In time, we come to know who that God was, that God was actually the transcendent creator of all reality, the one and true and only God, the God who revealed himself as Yahweh to Moses. But Abraham doesn't know that yet, I don't think. But that's who it was. What if Melchizedek had been a Muslim and he came to Abraham and out of whatever motives he had, he said, Allah gave you the victory. You owe your allegiance to Allah. What I'm arguing is Abraham would have reasoned, yeah, God gave me the victory. That wasn't my victory. I owe gratitude to God. I need to honor and worship God. Never mind that you have a completely different and relatively screwed up understanding of God. I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for God. I'm honoring the God who gave me victory. And at the moment, the way I can do that is to pay a tithe to the guy claiming to be a priest to that God. So Melchizedek is coming out to thank Abram for having, and I see when he says, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, and blessed be God most high, it's almost like he's saying, thank God you did this. Thank God you were successful. Mm-hmm. Thank God he mm-hmm. gave you the victory, right? Where thank God is more than just a cliche, but right. it's actually, yeah. And so that would sort of, now a moment ago, you quoted verse 22, and you used the, word, the name Yahweh. Mm-hmm. When you said Yahweh, God most translated high. Lord in the New American Standard, so that it, is Yahweh. It's Yahweh, yeah. Which they didn't know that name until right. Jesus. I would assume that this account is coming post Moses, and they've supplied that to make clear that that's who Abraham vowed to, had sworn an oath to. So the Mosaic author has assumed that Abram. <laughs> it, it seems to me they're saying Abram knew Yahweh. And so that when he said God Most High, he was talking about the God we, the Mosaic author, are discussing among ourselves. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think Abraham did know Yahweh. He just didn't know that he knew Yahweh. But the author of the account knows that he knew Yahweh. You don't think there would have been any sort of awareness in the conversation between, I mean, you could call God Albert, Alligator, any, you give him any name you want. But when you sit down and start talking about him and discussing what he's like, you know, where he lives, it's, uh, suddenly you realize, I don't think we're talking about the same God here. Right, right. Right? Right. Or I think we're talking about the same person here. Are you talking about Abraham and Melchizedek now? Yeah. Yeah. And so would they not have had to come to that understanding over the course of the day or the week or however long they were together that when Abraham turns to the king of Sodom and says, I have sworn to... And we're assuming this was... Yeah, if they ever had that conversation, that would have undoubtedly been the result. But there's no reason that they would have even needed to have that conversation. I think the key here for me is this account is not about Melchizedek. This account is about Abraham. Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek is not intended to tell us something about Melchizedek. 
It's intended to tell us something about Abraham. Namely, when faced with the perspective, you didn't gain that victory, Abraham. That victory was given to you by the most important God who exists. How did Abraham respond to that? That's right, it was. And that's telling us about the faith of Abraham right there. So Abraham could have sat at the table with five different priests from five different gods of five different pantheons, and they were all just shaking their heads going, man, God gave you this victory. How could you have pulled off a stunt like that? This is incredible. This is clearly a miracle. Marduk gave you the victory. Pablo Escobar gave you these names. I don't know where these names are coming from. But, you know, all these names go through the alphabet of names, and they would all, they would be obvious. Yeah. Someone bigger than you made this happen. Exactly. It had to have been little G God. And Abram's like, well, yeah, I'm pretty convinced. I mean, it's obvious to me that big G God gave me this victory. Exactly. So the, the, what you just said about this is about Abraham, not about Melchizedek. So the tithing is incidental to Melchizedek. It's incidental to the story about Abraham. It's not important. Well, except it's the way the story tells us that he accepted and embraced the viewpoint of gratitude toward that God, of accepting that it's a gift from God. That's how that gets expressed. But it is incidental with respect to who he's paying tithes to. It's why he's paying tithes that's important, not to whom he's paying tithes. So we're seeing here an illustration of Abraham's insight and faithfulness. Exactly. And humility. Exactly. I think so. Hi, I hope I can remember all of this. I have a lot of thoughts here. I just started going back in the passage to see what Abram's relationship to or interactions with Yahweh were prior to this event with Melchizedek. And in the beginning of chapter 12 is where I think the first time it says that Yahweh came to Abraham, started talking to him, and told him to go out of his country and that he would bless him and so forth. It doesn't say that he revealed himself by his name at that point, but a few verses later in verse 8, It says, there Abram built an altar to Yahweh, and he called upon the name of Yahweh. So that seems to indicate to me that he knew Yahweh's name at that point. And then in chapter 13, it says the same thing in verse 4, and there Abram called on the name of Yahweh. It depends on what that phrase, called on the name of, means. Does it mean he actually used the phoneme Yahweh when he referred to him? Or the one that we know as Yahweh he called on his name, and calling on his name means, I don't know what that means, but appealed to him, relied upon him, dependent, whatever that means, that can be true without him knowing Yahweh as a name that God gives himself. He doesn't need to know that name in order to call on him. You okay. see what I'm saying? I, I guess. Be, because the name, name doesn't really mean name the way we think of name. It's not a phoneme or a string of phonemes. It's a person in a role and in a position with a certain kind of authority and a certain kind of task to call on him is to depend upon his authority, his role, his position, his status. Okay, I can accept that understanding of to call on. That makes sense to me. It's not clear to me why the most straightforward reading of those passages wouldn't be that he did know his name. I mean, there's no reason for me to think that, that there's another well, right. Yeah. If I didn't have to deal with the Mount Sinai account, I might agree with you. But in the Mount Sinai account, the burning bush, Yahweh in the burning bush, says to Moses, by my name your fathers did not know me. They knew me as El Shaddai, but from now on you will know me as Yahweh. Which suggests to me that what he's saying is, Abraham didn't know that my self-given name was Yahweh. Okay, I'd have to think about that. And I guess I'm wondering, okay, a couple more things. Like I said, I hope I remember everything. The phrase that Melchizedek was a priest of El Elyon, I guess it is, God Most High. It's, it's incidental to this passage, and you said that the fact that Abraham gave Melchizedek tithe doesn't say anything about Melchizedek, and yet in Hebrews, Paul makes a big deal of the fact that Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. And he says... It's, we all know that the lesser one gives the tithe to the greater one. So it is a big deal. And I guess I don't see any reason not to take the statement that Melchizedek was a priest of the God Most High as a straightforward statement that he understood that 
Yahweh was the God Most High. I don't see a reason not to take it that way. Well, Babylon would have had a priest to Marduk, the God Most High. If, if we had evidence that Salem understood a different God to be the God Most High, then you could see that. Say that again? If we had evidence that Salem, of which Melchizedek was the king, had a different God Most oh, High, yeah. then sure. Right. Well, but, no, as I'm saying, I can't tell you that they didn't worship Yahweh. Maybe they did. But it would be an incredible anomaly in the ancient world of this time for that to be true. And given that it's an anomaly, or at least that's my perception, that it's an anomaly. Now, remember what Adam was saying last week. There is reason to think and expect that there were some people who had a memory of God from way back. So it's not impossible that there was a community that worshipped the real God that later tells us that his name is Yahweh. That's possible. That's fine. I don't have any problem with that. But there's nothing in the text that makes that clear, and it's not necessary. Nothing changes in this text, whether he does or he doesn't. Here's where my memory is running out, but you made some points last week, I believe, about the implications of Melchizedek, whether or not being the priest of the Most High God was, in fact, saying that he was a priest of Yahweh. And as I recall, and I could be wrong, I think that was important to your point of taking David's statement about Melchizedek as a, uh, and I forget the word that you used, an analogy, or he took a role rather than the reality of Melchizedek's service of Yahweh, or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't quite convinced of that point when you made it last week. And, and I, I'm wondering if, taking Melchizedek's role as priest of the Most High God in this passage, if separating that from that being Yahweh is important to the point you were trying to make last week? I don't, unless I'm confused, no. Or I could (laughs) be confused. No, it it shouldn't be important to that. Because we're going to look at the one who blesses is greater than the one who's blessed and so on. We'll look at that when we get done with Genesis here. But my whole point in Hebrews is He's not interpreting Genesis. Paul is not making a big deal out of Melchizedek in Genesis. He's making a big deal out of Melchizedek in Psalm 110. That's what he's making a big deal out of. And he's trying to understand what did David, in his creative imagination as a poet, what was he using Melchizedek to symbolize? And that's in those passages we've been looking at, that's what he's doing, is trying to understand what the meaning of the symbol of Melchizedek is in Psalm 110. And Melchizedek is a huge big deal to Psalm 110, absolutely, because you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But just because David is stressing Melchizedek doesn't mean Genesis is. David is exploiting the data from Genesis 14. He's not interpreting Genesis 14. That's the critical distinction. I guess... You've obviously done a lot more study in both Genesis and Psalms um, than I have. I'd have to go look at how it would make sense for David to be using Melchizedek as a symbol in the Psalms. That's a new thought to me, and I'd have to digest on that for a while. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly sure how to ask this question. In the past, you said that the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not the most real being. Because people can't see God. So his revelation to man is the God of the Bible, who has like come into the world and revealed himself to man. Right. Right? Okay. So that's Yahweh. Mm-hmm. When he revealed himself to Adam, when we created Adam, and when he, he gave them rules, obviously, because Abel followed the rules and Cain didn't, that's Yahweh, right? But he wasn't known. Right. He's Not. revealed himself in different ways at different times, I guess. And maybe he revealed himself as the God Yahweh to his people Israel. I don't know. I'm confused about that. Well, okay, as I would understand it, it's harder to speak to the issue of how Adam and Eve would have looked at God. I don't know what to say about that. But is that the God we know as Yahweh? Absolutely. Is the God that revealed himself to Abraham Yahweh? Absolutely. But neither by name nor conceptually... Does Abraham know what we can know? And so by name, he didn't attach the name Yahweh to him, I presume, unless somebody can show me how 
the interaction between Yahweh and Moses doesn't mean what it sounds like it means to me. I just have to take that at face value, that the fathers did not know me by that name. So then God has assigned a name to himself that's going to be his name from then on that only gets revealed in history at that point on Mount Sinai. But with that name, the name is significant because it's actually a revolution in our conception of God. Because what does Yahweh mean? I think what Yahweh means is, as the Septuagint translates it, the one who is. Well, what does that mean exactly? The one who is, I think, is a way of highlighting, underlining, exclamation point, this is the one who has existence when nothing else does. He's the one who just is and he can't isn't. He bees and he can't not be. He just is. He is the one who is. He's the one who bees. So God has existence just inherently, intrinsically, as the very fact of him being there. That's not true of anything else. You and I didn't have to be. If God had not willed my existence, I wouldn't exist. If the rocks and trees and gorillas and alligators, if God had not willed their existence, they wouldn't be. If the stars had not been willed into existence, they wouldn't be. None of this stuff would be if God did not bring it to pass. But that's not true of him. God just is. He's a bare, inexplicable fact from which everything else follows and everything else flows. I think that's what's intended by him assigning that name to himself. I want to assign a name to myself that gets you to think conceptually about who I am. Well, using more sophisticated philosophical language now, it's a way of God drawing attention to his what I would call transcendence. He's not just a part of reality. He's beyond reality. He's before reality. Before anything was real, he was. Well, but Jack, doesn't that make him real? No, it makes him more than real. It makes him prior to real. It makes him super real. It makes him get another name for it. But he's not real in the same way that we are real. He's more than that. And Yahweh is a way of pointing his finger to that conception of who we're dealing with when we're dealing with Yahweh. I don't think Abraham had got that yet. Abraham was trucking along thinking that he was the highest God in the pantheon, and as long as he could keep control and keep all of his little under-gods in order, would keep control of reality. But that God had blessed him and promised him, and he was learning to trust him and learning to obey him, and learning to have a relationship with that God, but he had not yet been educated, he had not yet been enlightened to what being am I obedient to, to what being am I trusting, and so on. And it's really not until Moses that God says then to Moses, time for a paradigm shift here. Your fathers knew me as El Shaddai, but from now on, you will know me as Yahweh. You're going to, pardon me? El Shaddai means... They don't know how to translate that, but most of them think it's another version of the Most High God, the highest, the biggest kid on the block kind of idea. Does that help? Okay. So when David the psalmist used Melchizedek, did that already have a finite given definition, and that's why he used it? I don't know, but I have no reason to think that it did. I think David is inventing this. I think David is creating the idea of a priest in the order of Melchizedek. I don't think anyone had ever thought in those terms before. So that was a completely meaningless term to everyone around him. Well, what do you mean a completely meaningless term? Well, if he says to his scribe, write this down, Mm -hmm. and he goes, according to Melchizedek, what he said, oh, I get it. You're using this thing we all share, this definition of Melchizedek, we all know. Or is he saying... They all would have known the account about Melchizedek. So he's not an unknown figure. That would be meaningless to coin a term that refers to something that's completely unknown to people. So yes, he's a known historical figure, but the idea that there would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, I think David is introducing that into history for the first time in Psalm 110. But he can't do that unless they know who Melchizedek is and what part of his character definition. Well, but like in all poetry, you don't know what it means until you think about it, right? And that's what Hebrews 7 
is. It's Paul thinking about it. It's Paul starting off the chapter not knowing what it means. Understand what I'm saying here. Starting off the chapter not knowing what it means to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, getting 10 verses in it and going, oh, I see what he means. You and I start Hebrews 7 not having a clue what it means for somebody to be the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But if we think about it, if we stop and see what Paul's doing by the end of the first paragraph, verse 10, we go, oh, that's what you think David meant by that. And yeah, cool, you're right. That's got to be what he meant. And so how is that different than Levi, the first priest? Because he too had no genealogy granting him the role of priesthood. He's no different than Melchizedek in that respect. There's nothing about Levi that says, well, you have to be a priest because of your parents. Well, but God appoints him on Mount Sinai. He gives them instructions and rules and says, you are a priest by my appointment. So his being a priest is not inexplicable. Melchizedek's priest, now remember what I said last week, what is David interpreting? He's not interpreting the Melchizedek of history. He's interpreting the Melchizedek of Genesis 14. And in Genesis 14, Melchizedek shows up meeting Abraham, and I don't have a clue where he's coming from or where he's going. And why is he priest of the Most High God? It's inexplicable to me. I have no clue. And what David is saying is just like there's this dude who was a priest to the Most High God, and it was inexplicable why he was a priest at all, that's what the Messiah is going to be like. He's going to have a priesthood that is completely out of the blue, completely inexplicable to you. He shouldn't be a priest, but he's going to be a priest forever. There's no way he should be functioning as a priest. But God has said he's sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so what Paul is saying is, so why Melchizedek? Because it's going to be just as inexplicable as it was in the account, in the story that we read in Torah about Melchizedek, king of Salem. Yeah, it just sort of boils down to God saying, because I said so. Yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. And, and which I'm great, I'm fine with. I, that's perfect, that's wonderful. That's why we can trust it. And it just strikes me that's what David is saying. Well, why was he a priest? Because God said so. Not because of how he was born, not because of his lineage. Well, but no, you can't even ask the question with respect to Melchizedek, but why is he priest? It's not inexplicable historically. If you were to go back to Salem, you'd find out why, how he got elected or how he got appointed or how he came to be priest. There's nothing mysterious in history about Melchizedek being the priest, but there's everything mysterious in the account about why Melchizedek is a priest that Abraham is paying tithes to you go, whoa, where'd this come from? Why is this happening? And that's why I emphasized last week, it's so critical that we understand what Paul is doing. He's understanding that David is taking the account in Genesis, not the historical reality of the historical person, Melchizedek, and interpreting the account, not the person. Surely, Paul does not believe for a second that the Melchizedek, the historical person, lived forever. That makes absolutely no sense. And yet he's going to say, but as far as the account is concerned, if you squint right and you allow David to make him conform to the Messiah, look, the eternality of his priesthood. You never see it end. That's what he's doing, I would argue. Hey, Jack. It seems like in the Genesis account you have, you have Abraham who has this inside track on El Shaddai and the God of the promise, the promises to him. And the God of the promise has just delivered this huge victory to him. And so now he's standing in front of all these kings. Let's say all five of them are gathered there greeting him. And he's got this incredible audience where he gets to be a, essentially a prophet for his God. Yeah. And say, let me tell you a couple things about this God. And it seems like it boils down to two things. It's, it's what you mentioned that he says through his response to Melchizedek over and against the king of Sodom. But then secondly, it's also what he hints at in saying, not only did I promise not to keep any of this stuff, but I wanted to make sure that no one could say that, that you enriched me because, right. A, this God has promised riches to me and I don't need anybody else making me rich. Great point, my God's, exactly. My God's going to do that for me, A. Yeah. 
and then B, for posterity's sake, down the line, when God's promises are being fulfilled, I don't want anybody to say it was someone else who had a hand in that other than Yahweh. Exactly. Especially not a king as wicked as you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's right on. I think that's exactly right. Hi, Jack. I think my comments are kind of tangential to the how this relates to Hebrew. But just looking at the Genesis passage, the commentary in my Bible going back, it goes back to the genealogical tables in chapter 10. And then it notes that the king of Elam is a Shemite, and probably these other kings are too. So going off of that, the commentary says... Abraham's ability to pursue and overcome the Shemite conquerors testifies to his status as heir of Shem and recipient of Shem's blessing. So they're looking at his, uh, and then it says, moreover, this demonstrates the fulfillment of the divine promise to protect Abraham and his household. So it's seen significance, the commentators are seeing significance in these kings that he's beating, God giving him victory there is affirming that Abraham is going to be an important descendant of Shem who's going to inherit and kind of continue on those blessings that God promised to Shem, like receiving those, inheriting those. What do you think about that? Well, I probably need to think about it some more, but I don't respond positively immediately to that. It seems like why would the account not give me some piece of information that that's the connection that they intend? Well, the it? fact that the kings are listed, that so their ancestors are also in that table, and that God is coming to Abraham, Abraham, a descendant of Shem, and pro- giving him promises. Well, he's also a descendant of Adam, according to the genealogies. Mm-hmm. But just that the Genesis, as this progresses through the Genesis narrative, we have Adam, we have Noah, we have Shem, now we have Abram, so we're kind of tracing God's involvement with the human race, and here's a descendant now who God has spoken. Well, let me put it this way. What if it wasn't the king of Salem that did this, but it was the king of Albany? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so the king that they're referring to is not Melchizedek, it's Ketoleomar, the king of Elam, the one that Abraham beats. So Abraham defeats these Shemite kings, and God gives him victory against them, kind of like ratifying him as the heir who's going to inherit. Oh, I see what you... Okay. I thought you were talking about Melchizedek. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to think about that. Mm -hmm. It doesn't immediately resonate with me. Yeah. The other... But bringing up Melchizedek, too, because there's just a slew of geographical and all these names and geography and places. And looking on my map, I'm trying to get a picture of what was Abraham's like cosmos, you know, his, his world that he was living in and his culture. And it relates to people's questions about what God did Abraham think he was worshiping, like who was the real referent there. But yeah, Salem is like right in that area right. where Abraham's living and all of that. He might have known Melchizedek. He might sure. have worshipped in Salem sure. to the God most high and stuff. And then Salem becomes Jerusalem. Right. And I don't know when Genesis was written, but it seems like that's not a coincidental detail. Like, he defeats these okay, kings. let me save my response to that. Okay. I have a whole section where I want to talk about that. Okay. I will argue that it is just a coincidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just struck me that, like, he defeats, he's kind of, like, taking on, he's defeating people in the line of Shem and becoming an important, influential leader in the region. Then he's blessed by the priest and king of the city that will later be the central, like, national center for worship of Yahweh. It seems important. I don't know. So, yeah, I'll be interested to hear your response to that. Yeah, this is the issue we have to wrestle with, and I can't tell you how important I think this is. That's really clever of you to see all those connections. The question is, what are we seeing? Your cleverness or God's truth being taught to us. And it's critical that we be able to make that distinction and work to make that distinction. Because there's no end the connections that a really clever, intelligent human being could make. There's no end to that. Are they all meaningful? Are they all from God? Do they all have purpose and are intended to teach us something? And I'm going to run out of time, so I can't take that up 
this week. We'll have to put that up till next week. But I think we need to think about that because the problem is we live in a world where in academic biblical studies, that's what they practice. The problem is their practice is very much at home in a view of the Bible as a merely human artifact. It's not the divine word of God. It doesn't have guaranteed truth and veracity. It's just an artifact. And when you're dealing with just an artifact, to believe that the human beings who put it together, stitched it together, composed it, so on and so on and so forth, were very inventive in the connections that they were intending and everything, well, of course, that makes all the sense in the world. But for them, you can invent stuff that doesn't even have to be true, doesn't even have to be real, right? It's like writing a novel. Can a novelist foreshadow something that's going to happen later in the novel by planting some event here that's going to, you're going to go later and go, whoa, they showed me that, they gave me a peek of that. Yeah, because the whole world is designed and governed by the author of the novel. But can Luke do that? Can Moses do that? Can Matthew do that? No, they're constrained by reality. They're constrained by the facts. They're constrained by the truth, unless they're not, right? And what happens if we practice what modern biblical academic scholarship is doing, we end up practicing something that makes us well-trained in not taking the Bible seriously as anything other than a human artifact. And it just ever so subtly begins to erode and sabotage our confidence in the Bible. And that's why this is a big deal to me, because everything, our faith is, is grounded in our confidence in the Bible as being not just one more book out there, This is the book that God in his creative activity gave us that is guaranteed to give us the truth about history, about God, about humanity and human beings, about the universe. It's guaranteed to give us the truth to the extent that it tells us what it tells us. Whatever it reveals is true. And if that begins to get undermined, there's no stopping point. So to give you an example, in our particular culture, If someone like Paul, for example, is just giving us our take on Jesus, is just giving us his take on the significance of Jesus, death, resurrection, life, and so on, okay, great. And I can go a long way believing that, well, I'm going to take Paul's take as my take. I'm going to be a faithful disciple of Jesus through Paul and I think his take must be inspired and it must be the truth and so on. But when all is said and done, it's just his take on it. Well, if it's just his take on it, when he makes a comment about homosexuality, is that just his take on it? Or when he says something about sexual morality in general, is that just his take on it? Well, you see the slight step, the very small step it is from, well, it's just this is Paul's take on things to well, this part of it I can kind of ignore and recognize that it's kind of obsolete, old-fashioned, never was true, and what does he know anyway? Oh, I accept all the rest of it, but uh, this part, well, why do you accept all the rest of it? If it's just his take on it, who is he, right? But you often, in biblical scholarship, the, the scholars will look at, you hear this, even so-called, they call themselves conservatives. They consider themselves conservative, but they're looking at Luke Well, what did Luke want to point out to us about Jesus here? Well, it makes all the difference in the world. Strictly speaking, there's nothing wrong with that. Was Luke composing his gospel because he wanted us to know something? And wasn't he trying to point something out to us? Yes, he was. But was he trying to point it out to us as his take on it? Or is he wanting to point it out to us as that which he discovered to be true about the actual historical Jesus? Well, that's a very fine line, but it's a watershed issue. It makes all the difference in the world, which he was doing. Now, I don't mean it makes all the difference in the world necessarily to you. I'm not speaking to you, but to (laughs) to you. Because we can live with all kinds of confusions and inaccuracies and 
muddy thinking and still have an absolutely solid, genuine faith. But we have to remember we're talking to other people who are not where we're at. They don't have our faith. They don't have our experience. They don't have our confidence. And if what we say sounds like sophistry, then why should they believe it? I might continue believing it, but why should they believe it? The Bible's full of just all these little tricks and illusions and coincidences that we call purposive and all this kind of stuff, all this junk. You Christians, (laughs) give it up. Give it up. Why don't you just admit that you're playing games and stop believing all this nonsense? Well, do I want to talk in a way that gives the impression that that's the foundation of what I believe is sophistry? So, sorry, my blood pressure's going up, but (laughs) that's why this is an important issue to me, because I just think a lot's at stake. We have so many forces arrayed against the truth and against taking the Bible seriously. Let's not give them anything else to use. Don't concede something that we shouldn't concede because it just becomes ammunition for those people who don't want to believe it, to attack it and not believe it. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you that we have to be really careful to not read all kinds of things into the text that aren't there and stuff you've been talking about with the Christological, typological interpretation of Melchizedek would be an example of that going back and trying to find all these connections that relate to the way, the picture that I've formed, and now I'm going to go back and read all these things into it. And I think that it's so important, I agree that it's so important that we try to understand what has God actually, what is he actually telling us? What is God actually? And then hold fast to that. Yeah. From the perspective of authorial intent, though, it makes a difference to me what is the human narrator or whoever oh, absolutely. together. Yeah, absolutely. They are, are in a different culture who, that has a different literary... What was their literary style? People maybe were used to this kind of stuff. And if I start to build a picture of readers would have been a lot more in tune in that culture to these kinds of illusions, and they seem sophistical to me, maybe. But if they're really there, then I want to know that that's the nature of the biblical text. No, absolutely. Too. And let me set the record straight. All my comments were not directed. I'm not scolding you. Yeah, I, 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 I understood that. <laughs> I, I really did not have in view what you had said. I, you just happened to punch the button. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. That's okay. Yeah, no, what you said is very reasonable, and we need to consider that. We need to consider, I can't dismiss out of hand what you're saying. I don't think that's right. But I don't dismiss it out of hand because, yes, the human author who composed these stories, that could be exactly the connections that he intends. But what's important, and this is what we'll talk about next week, is we need to learn to tell the difference between a coincidence and a purposive connection. And I'll talk about this next week. But you know, you'd think as a divine determinist, right, <laughs> how can any connection not be purposive? That's true. I think I can assume that every connection that can be made between one event and another event had some purpose by the author of all reality, God. That's true. And yet, my common sense tells me, as I look back at my life, there's this very important distinction that I make between coincidences and those things that are not coincidences, those things that are purposive. It may very well be the case that what I call a coincidence in the mind and from the perspective of God, is completely and utterly purposive. He had a purpose for it. But if I don't know that purpose, it doesn't do me any good. It's not helpful for me to think in terms of that being purposive if I can't pinpoint the purpose. And I would argue that's what we mean by a coincidence, is a, albeit divinely purposive, connection that I don't have a clue what the purpose is. That's a coincidence. Well, when it comes to Bible study, it's our common sense distinction between coincidence and purpose that's all important. Because if I think I can look for a purpose in every coincidence, I have no control on what I say. Because I don't actually know the purpose of God, so I'm making stuff up. I'm just saying, well, how about this? Let's call this the purpose. 
or this other one thing would do, or this other thing would do. What I want to do next week is give some examples of ways to interpret the Bible that kind of imitate what the Bible scholars do, but hopefully you'll be able to see, that's ridiculous, Jack, you're being absurd. But I have just as much right to make the connections that I'm going to make as they do the connections that they make. None of this makes any sense to you. <laughs> but we'll talk about it next week. Okay, so. thanks. One more. Well, I can't help but make some bit of sense out of that because I do it myself, just on a level, a personal level, where a coincidence will happen, and I have been overcoming the habit of saying, well, that was God or that was this or that. And to me, on a personal level, I can kind of hear what you're mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, exactly. Big mistake. I realized after coming here that if I'm doing that all the time, I'm just all over the place saying, yeah. that's God, that's God, yeah. or that means this, you know. It's crazy, crazy making. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of the same. Yeah. yeah. You don't dare ask me another question. <laughs> we'll take that up next week. <laughs>